All right, well, good morning again. And if you have a Bible, or either in paper or on your phone, go ahead and open up to John uh, chapter 20. I'm going to read it in just a moment. We're going to read verse, uh, starting verse 19 down to the end of the chapter. But uh, before that, I want to ask you a question, and it's, it's this question. Um, what would it take for you to quit your job, um, move to another suburb, or even another part of the world, um, to see more Jesus-exalting churches planted in places where they don't exist? What would it take for you to do something that disruptive, that costly, that hard? What would it take? Uh, maybe if you were doing it with friends. Maybe if you knew that your, your spouse or your, your kids were on board, that you were doing it together. Or, or maybe if you knew that your funding would be guaranteed no matter what. Maybe if you knew that your church would never get shut down by government restrictions or opposition, would that be enough to get you over the line? What would it take? If you're like most people, it would take more than some empty promises to do something that costly. Now, there's, a, there's an author... Um, He's North American by the, a guy by the name of Simon Sinek, and he um, gave one of the most downloaded TED Talks in the history of TED Talks. And uh, he, then he wrote a book um, based on his TED Talk, and, and, and really the whole idea of his talk was that really if you want to be a successful leader, successful starter of a, a, a movement of any kind, then you have to start with why you are doing what you are doing. You have to, be able, you have to know why. And you start from that place of conviction, that, that place of belief, and then you go with other people who believe what you believe. And that's how a movement begins. That's how churches are planted. We start with that question, why? In every endeavor, in every endeavor that lasts, you have to know why you do what you do. So that brings me back to the question I asked before, what would it take for you to quit your job and move to another suburb or to the other side of the world to see more Jesus-exalting churches planted in places where they do not exist. It starts with why. Uh, Jesus did not spend his last days on earth telling his disciples what to do. He didn't give them a step-by-step roadmap of what they would do after he left. Instead, he gave them a vision of himself, one, one that radiates with glory, the glory of his resurrected presence. He painted a picture with his words and his actions so that every one of them, every one of his disciples knew who they were and knew the life that they were created to live, a life of serving and glorifying God and rejoicing in every aspect of Jesus' person, a life resembling and representing God in every space, a life of believing and then acting on the words that he speaks. And that's the life you are created to live as well here in Adelaide in 2021 or wherever God sends you from now on, a life of seeing God, of rejoicing in what you see, a life of resembling and representing him as men and women created in his image, and then a life of believing and acting on 
his words. So, so let me pray, and then I'm going to read the text from John 20, and then we'll unpack it this morning. So join me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. I ask now that you would come, Holy Spirit, and sanctify us in your truth. Set us apart for your work. Set us apart for yourself. Lord, thank you that we, you haven't left us alone, that we are here in your presence. And so be with me now as I speak, um, and be with us as we listen, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, John chapter 20, starting verse 19, I'm reading from the CSB. When it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced in, when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What does it mean to see God? To see God. What what does that mean? This text makes it clear that part of your life's purpose, part of the reason you exist, part of your why is to see God. The disciples at the beginning of this scene, they knew that Jesus' body was not in the tomb. They'd already, Peter and John had already run there after hearing the report from Mary Magdalene and the group of women. They'd already run to the tomb and they knew the tomb was empty. They just witnessed his brutal execution three days earlier on the cross. And they knew that the same people who had Jesus killed, who had him tried and condemned, would just in a heartbeat have crosses made for them as well. These are the same powerful people who would be furious if they knew that Jesus' body had disappeared and thus would start rumors that he actually did raise from the dead. And the disciples were there locked in this room. They were terrified that they were going to be blamed for the fallout of whatever happened. They were there imagining what it might feel like to have those same metal spikes driven into their wrists. And then, in a moment that changed history, he was there. And they saw him. He says these words, peace be with you. Three times in this text, peace be with you. 
He tells this to his, his closest friends. Why? Well, one obvious reason is they're terrified, and they need peace in that moment. They're terrified of the authorities. That's why the door was locked. And they're terrified that they're seeing Jesus, a man who 48 hours ago was dead. Dead people don't walk into rooms and they don't talk. They were terrified. So those are the obvious reasons why Jesus said, peace be with you. I mean, but he could have said, guys, relax. Chill out. Don't be scared. But he didn't. He said, peace be with you. Why, why these words? I mean, think about it for a minute. In the Bible, um, what happens to a man or a woman who sees God? What happens? Think about, there's many examples we could turn to, but the one that sticks up, sort of jumps out in my mind is the example of Isaiah 6. If you're familiar with that story, where the prophet Isaiah, he has a vision um, of God. He sees God. It says, high and lifted up, and the, the, his robe is filling the temple. And there's angels there worshiping him and saying, holy, holy, holy. And, and, and what is Isaiah's response? He, he falls on his face. Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have what? Seen the Lord. He was terrified, you see. What was needed? What was needed for, to, for Isaiah's terror to go away? What was needed for him to have peace? In that moment, an angel appears and, and, and grabs a, a, a glowing coal in, with tongs and, and touches that coal to his lips and then speaks these words. Now that this has touched your lips, your sin, your iniquity, is removed. Your sin is atoned for. So God in that moment was showing Isaiah that there is a way for a sinful man or a sinful woman to see God and not die. There's a way for sin to be forgiven. See, the terrified disciples, they saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. Not a ghost. They even, they touched him. He was pure perfection. He was pure holiness. He was pure glory. And they did not die. They didn't just survive the encounter, though. It says they what? They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. See, that's why I say this is the moment that changed history. Because before the cross, before the atonement, before Jesus died to take on the penalty of your sin on the cross... At the moment that your eyes lock with God, you're dead. You're done for because he is pure holiness and, and, and when we are not. Now, the risen Lord, victorious over the grave, we see him and we rejoice. Everything has changed. And that's the whole purpose of the cross. The reason Jesus died is that so you and me, sinful, imperfect, unholy people that we are, can have access to God. We can approach him. We can come near. You have, through the blood of Jesus, been made pure. You've been made holy. You've been made blameless. And now when you come near, you come rejoicing. Peace be with you. Paul says it this way, Romans 5. 
You might have heard these words before. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Friends, the gospel says that you were created to see God with your eyes. You were created to see him. But for, in order for that to happen, you first had to be given a new, purified heart. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for you and me. For anyone who believes in him will not die, but have an eternity of seeing him. They knew, the disciples knew at that moment, that they had been re- reunited with their dear friend. But they also knew that everything had changed for them at that moment. Peter was there. Peter Remember, he had denied Jesus, called down curses. I don't know it. Three times he'd done this, and he was there, and his eyes had seen the Lord, and he didn't die. He rejoiced. Going back to Isaiah for a moment. As soon as Isaiah had realized that he had seen God and lived, that his sins had been atoned for, what did he do? What does he do? He hears the voice of God saying this, who will go for me? Who will I send? And Isaiah speaks up. I, well, I, I picture him speaking in a very small voice, kind of squeaky. Here I am. <laughs> send me. I mean, growing up hearing like missionary sermons and stuff, it was always, here I am. Like it's like a superhero voice, but I don't think that's how it went down. That's just me. Maybe we can ask him when we get to, get to heaven. Um, you exist to see more of him. You exist to see more of him and to have joy in him. He's your, your treasure. And just like anything else we really treasure, whether it's our kids, our homes, our spouses, our cars, our communities, we, we become almost automatically brand ambassadors for those things. We brag on our kids. We tell people about the, the, the extension we put on our house or the holiday we just took. We talk about what we treasure. And, and Isaiah in that moment and the disciples in this moment, they're just so caught up in rejoicing. They become ambassadors for the risen Jesus. So what do you treasure? Is it what lasts. And that leads me to the, the second point. So you were created to see God. That's point number one, if you're following along. Uh, point number two, you, you were created to resemble and represent God. You were created to resemble and represent God. After the rejoicing and the hooping and hollering dies down in this moment in the upper room, um, Jesus says it again, peace be with you. And then he adds, these words, very consistent to what we saw in Isaiah 6. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. If you go back through John's gospel, Jesus says over and over again, just do a quick word search in your English Bible, how many times Jesus refers to himself as being sent, as being sent from the Father. He says it a whole stack of times. Jesus saw himself self-consciously as someone who'd been sent into the world by God on a rescue mission. 
The Father sent the Son into the world to do his work. And what was that work? That work was to call the people that the Father had chosen to believe in him to believe and receive eternal life. That, that was his work. And, and now Jesus is about to leave the world, and he tells the disciples, he's saying, I'm passing the baton to you. As the Father sent me, now I send you. You are going to carry on the same mission that I've had. That's your why. That's, that's, that's why you've seen me. And, and now you're going to be like me. You're going to be sent into the world so that others can also see and taste the goodness of the one who sent me. See, you're not only created to carry the name of Jesus into the world where you live and work and recreate. You carry on the work of Jesus in the world, which means that how you go about the mission matters. Jesus said things like this. He said, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. In other words, Jesus did not make it up on the fly. He didn't make up this stuff as he went along. Everything he did, every miracle, every conversation, every interaction was something he knew that the Father had called him to do. So, for example, when we are sent out into the world, we don't manipulate people. We don't use force. We don't trick people. Because Jesus never did that. It's not how he went about it. He went out confidently knowing that the Father had work for him to do and people who would believe. And so he went out in that same humble confidence. And so can you. And so can I. That's why our aim should always be to gather men and women who believe into communities. Because that's what Jesus did. Into healthy, gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting churches so that they can be equipped to do the work of the ministry. When we take our orders from Scripture and from the wisdom we draw from Scripture, which is God's Word, we know that we're doing the work of God and not just building kingdoms for ourselves. Why is it so important to take our marching orders for for mission from God directly? Because we're brand ambassadors. And we're repping his brand, not not ours. That's why we take orders from him. And God is the one we know has a big heart for his people, for the church. And so we go out to multiply communities of his people. That's built into the mission of, of this church. We want to fill the whole earth with his glory, not ours. With his glory as the waters cover the sea. And, and, and we see his glory filling the earth as churches are planted among every people group, among every nation, every community, every family, speaking every language. That's how his glory fills the earth as churches are multiplied across nations. We've been going through the book of Genesis down at City Light South and it's been really, really good. Um, it's something that I'm more convinced of now than ever is that Genesis 1, this idea that men and women, male and female, created in the image of God, it's so foundational to everything that we believe about ourselves and everything we believe about the world. Libraries full of books have been written on this question. What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? 
And so I can't really answer that question for you in 30 seconds. But uh, to be created in the image of God, I'm going to try, just to kind of scratch the surface, means that, number one, you were created to resemble him, to look like him. Not, not just talking physical appearance, because God is spirit, but resemble him in character. He is holy. You're called to be holy. He is love. You're called to embody Love, and on and on and on. You are created to resemble him, to be like him. Only human beings can do that. Only human beings can resemble God in these ways. And only humans are held responsible when we do not resemble God in these ways. Number two, you are created to represent him, to be his ambassador, to fill the earth, as it says in Genesis 1, and subdue it, to rule over it as representatives of the Creator, to be God's brand ambassador wherever we go on the face of the earth, and, and with whatever we do, we glorify Him. He's, he's given us the message, the gospel revealed in Scripture in the person of Jesus. He's given us the strategy the multiplication of communities of disciples who make disciples. And he's given us the power to get it done. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Right here, right after Jesus said, I'm sending you. Then he said, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the power to get the job done that he's given us to do. Fellow image bearer of God, here is your why. Here is your why. You exist to resemble him to become more like him, and you exist to represent him. Look at verse 23. When anyone announces the gospel of forgiveness to a person, if that person believes, then they're forgiven. If anyone believes the gospel, then they're forgiven. Now, who is up for that kind of task? Is it, you know, professional Bible college graduates? Well, I certainly hope Bible college graduates are able to announce the gospel of forgiveness to people. But no, this word is given to people who never went to Bible college, many of whom probably couldn't even read. This is a word given to every, everyone, everyone called to represent him wherever they go. Someone who has been joined to God, whose sins have been forgiven, and has received the Holy Spirit. His joy becomes your joy. His mission becomes your mission. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So you were created to see God. You were created to resemble and represent him. And now finally, and we're going to see this in the example of Thomas. You were created to believe in and act on everything that he says. Thomas sometimes, I think, gets a bad rap. He's called Doubting, Doubting Thomas often. Um, I like to think of him as super normal human Thomas. Doesn't roll off the tongue. Like, anyway. Uh, uh, you could think of him as an ESTJ, if you're into Myers-Briggs, um, or an Enneagram 5. If you know that, I'll pray for you. Um, he's not going to be led by his emotions, because facts don't care about your feelings. That's, that's Thomas. Um, and the fact is, Jesus was dead. He'd seen it with his own eyes. So he says quite normally, unless I see his body, his formerly dead body, standing here talking to me, I, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not gullible. Man of science. Jesus waits a week before showing up when Thomas was in the room. 
And he's got the same greeting. Peace be with you. And specifically here, the peace he's referring to is the peace that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to these words. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our what? For our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. And Jesus looks at Thomas and says, touch the wounds. Touch the wounds that healed you. And he does. At that moment, so we get the, probably the greatest spontaneous act and confession of worship in the history of ever. Falls down and says, my Lord and my God. One of the best worship songs ever written. You know, John's gospel starts out with this word of affirmation that the word who existed from eternity past, who was God, who was with God, that that word became flesh. And as Eugene Peterson memorably put it, he moved into the neighborhood. He, he made his, his, his dwelling with us. And we saw him. We saw his glory with our eyes. He was full of grace and truth. That's the glory that Thomas saw in that moment in Jesus' wounded flesh. Grace and truth. Jesus is still looking at him and he says, because you have seen me, you've believed. Which is what we want. We want people to see Jesus and believe. To see Jesus and believe. And you think, well, how is that going to happen? Because... There's 120 people in that room, and they can't fit any more people in there, and we can't time travel back to 2,000 years ago. How are people going to see Jesus and believe? Thankfully, we get the very next line that Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. What does he mean? Well, he means that uh, you don't have to be physically there in that room. You don't have to actually see the physical resurrected body of, body of Jesus yet. You will one day if you believe. But it's not a precondition. It's not a requirement for believing. Because the disciples are sent out into the world by Christ, and only because the disciples are sent out into the world by Christ, you can believe without physically seeing his resurrected body. It's the only way it happens. 1 John 3 verse 2 says it this way. We know that when he appears, this is in, in the future, but also now through the lives of his followers, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. The disciples saw him in that room on that day, and from that moment in time onward, they became like him. They became his representatives. And then they went out from that room sharing the good news about Jesus with anyone who would listen. And, and those people saw him and they believed. And then they went out and shared with others who saw him and believed. And this went on and on and on for 2,000 years until at some point in the, in the history of humanity, someone who had seen him and believed came and helped you to see him and believe by the grace of God. The disciples would go on to record their experience of seeing him and all of the implications of what it means to see him. 
in written form. And we have their words still today. And you can turn to those words, and in those words, you can see him, and you can believe, you can stake your life in these words, because they're true. And when you share these words with others, there is power in these words for people who have hard hearts, people who have sinned, people who are broken and far from God. There is power in these words for people to see him in these words and believe. And by believing, as John is about to say, have life in his name. Our job in mission is not to try to physically conjure up the body of Jesus for people. It is simply to proclaim and live out the words of his followers that people might see him and believe. Everyone who is able to see will see. So we can go out with humble confidence. These are John's closing lines. This is John's why. He just tells us. This is why he writes. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written. Because you, you don't need to see those. What I've written down are the ones that you do need to see. These are written so that, this is why, so that you may believe. And that you is not written to anyone specifically. It is you. So you, it's you, sitting in chair right here in 2021. So that you might believe, and by believing, you might have life in his name. He had a pen. He had a testimony, and so he wrote. That was his mission. Friends, what is your why? What is your why? What is the reason that you exist? The call to go to people who don't yet believe in Jesus, to plant churches where churches do not yet exist. The call still stands. The call to translate the Bible his words into new languages so that others might be able to see and believe and have life in his name. This call goes out to anyone who has already seen. That's the qualification to be a missionary is to have seen and believed and received life in his name. That's it. So if that's you, then you're called. I want you to hear the, the opening chapters of one of the classic books of Christian history, a book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs, written by John Fox. Here's what he writes about the earliest Christians that lived just after John wrote. He says, In that age, every Christian was a missionary. The soldier tried to win recruits. The prisoner sought to bring his jailer to Christ. Slave girl whispered the gospel in the ears of her mistress. The young wife begged her husband to be baptized. Everyone who had experienced the joys of believing tried to bring others to faith. Everyone who had experienced the joys of believing tried to bring others to faith. Rich, poor, male, female, old, young, slave, free, People from tough backgrounds, people from privileged backgrounds, everyone was a missionary because making Jesus big was everybody's why. It was everybody's why. No one was on the sidelines. The eye was involved. The hand was involved. The pancreas was involved. Every part of the body had a role to play. So what about you? What is your role 
in mission. As the Father sent Jesus, so he has sent you into the world that others might see and believe and have life in his name. I wonder what's changed um, for you in this, this over the past year and a half in this year of global insecurity. Are you, as Don said a moment ago, just kind of longing to get back to some sense of normality? Well, can I challenge you to pray with me that the, the new normal for, for this church, for our churches combined, would be that we see ourselves as people on mission, sent out by Jesus himself with his authority, repping his brand, that that's your why, that that be the, the normal for this church. What are you doing with the life that he's given you to make him big? I want to tell you, in, so in 2019, the year um, that international travel in and out of Australia broke all records, biggest year in history, and I'm sure everyone in that industry was just anticipating that 2020 would be even bigger. But in 2019, people left Australia 10 million times. Now, that's not 10 million unique people. Some people went more than once. But 10 million times, someone handed in a form to a customs agent and said, I'm leaving the country. 56% of those trips were for holidays. What if just 1% of those trips were people whose why was to take the good news of Jesus to places where people are ready to see and ready to believe. Just 1%. In 2016, the, year, the most recent year we have data, Australians spent a combined $13.4 billion on personal care. Haircuts, manicures, gym memberships, and the like. $450 million on pet pampering. What if just 1% of that amount was dedicated to seeing the Bible translated into new languages and the gospel preached to new neighborhoods and new nations where there is still work to do? I mean, we've got work to do right here in our own homes We've got work to do on the other side of the world. The question is not about do we have the capacity. We have the capacity. We just don't always have the willingness. And so we want to pray that we see that our, this is our why. Are you willing? Are you willing to take that risk? What would it take to say with Isaiah, even in a small, squeaky voice, I'm ready. Help me see. Help me see. I, I, I pray, and this is my prayer for you, that your vision of Jesus, your vision of God would be so big that you would see him the way Thomas saw him, that you would fall down in your face in worship, my Lord and my God. Here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this picture of who you are, Lord. Help us to never forget. Help us to see. Help us to believe your Holy Spirit that gives us eyes. And as we see, help us to have life in your name, joy that's going to last forever. 
Thank you for these churches that are represented here. Lord, may we be your brand ambassadors, not for ourselves, but for you and your glory alone. Thank you for your love, for your grace, and for this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.